Greetings, Changeling the Podcast listeners. Puka here, coming at you with a special PAX Unplugged minisode. PAX Unplugged, if you're not aware, is a three-day convention in Philadelphia dedicated to all forms of analog gaming. Board games, card games, and of course, tabletop RPGs. Today I walked around to the expo hall, meeting various role-playing game authors and creators to talk to them about games and products that I see as changeling adjacent. They deal with fey themes, dark fey themes, fairy tale themes, folklore, mythology, and various other subjects that may be of interest to changeling tables. So herein are four interviews with creators Andrew Valkoskas, Charles Ryan, Charles Ferguson Avery, and Stephen Dewey. Please note that these interviews took place in a large and crowded expo hall, and I was also talking through an N95 mask, so I've done my best to make everyone audible. Links and information about the creators and their products will also be provided in the episode notes, and if you happen to be attending PAX the day this episode goes out, please consider stopping by their booths. With that, on with the episode. So I'm here at PAX at booth 4232 with... Andrew Volkoskis. Who's the creator of various games, it looks like, or maybe variants of a single game. I'm not, I'm not quite sure. Can you tell us about the games you're here with? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Pendlehaven's uh, main product line or world that we call is Fate of the Norns. Uh, within Fate of the Norns, we have many games, many sub-universes. Uh, so our main flagship product is Fate of the Norns Ragnarok. So Ragnarok is our TTRPG. Uh, we have a Celtic rulebook, we have a Vikings rulebook, so depending on where you want to start, you only need one of those rulebooks. Then we've got a whole bunch of supplementary products like bestiaries, uh, deep dives into other realms like the realms of gods and giants, uh, the realm of mankind. We also have a line of uh, collaborative storytelling games that we call Vanaguard. So that's Fate of the Norns Vanaguard. Uh, we have Fate of the Norns uh, Golveg, which is like a drinking game, like a beer and pretzel style, you know, poker night replacement game. Um, we have novels written by established authors uh, that we then turned into adventures for Ragnarok. Uh, we have graphic novels uh, that are the Icelandic sagas turned into graphic novels in comic book format, so they're a little bit easier to digest than, like, let's say, academic translations. Um, as, and, as an academic, I have to say that I, I do enjoy the academic translations, but yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm like you. Uh, I can read them and I enjoy them, but there are so many people that have borrowed my academic yeah, yeah, books. Yeah. Then I get them back the next day. They're like, I can't read this. Um, and then we have Athliath, which is our latest offering. Uh, so in Fade of Norns Athliath, we are actually in 10th century Dublin. It is the biggest city Ed has created. So Ed Greenwood and I have been working on it for three years. And about a year and a half ago, he said it's the biggest city he's worked on ever at this point. Uh, there, we have 1,300 buildings fully detailed. Oh, wow. And now we're doing deep dives into the city, if that wasn't enough. Um, and we're going to be doing cartography of all the buildings, too. Um, so we have a big map from the outside. We're going to do the interiors. And then lastly, uh, what you see on this table are a bunch of mythology and fairy tale books. So these are where we just did our research in, in a certain topic, whether it was the Viking period or we ended up doing one on the six Celtic kingdoms or some of the coolest underrated fairy tale creatures. And this, this has no game material in it. But a lot of game designers pick them up to use them as inspiration, as lore, and a lot of people that come to these shows also come with their significant others that are made not be gamers, and that t- the novels and the mythology books totally appeal to them. Just out of curiosity, what do you think is the most underrated fairy tale character or creature? Uh, I would say the Slibinus. So uh, that comes from Baltic mythology. Okay. And the thing with Baltic mythology and Slavic mythology, they're very rich. 
But here in North America, no one knows anything about them. It's because there are so very few English books about oh. uh, these uh, mythologies. So if you think about it in history, the Baltics were the last countries to be Christianized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they have the longest writ uh, stories uh, and traditions of fairy tales, monsters, gods, all of that. And so, uh, but most of the books are like in Lithuanian or Latvian or Estonian. And so you need to get, you know, someone who can translate it. And uh, fortunately, I speak Lithuanian. Oh, okay, excellent. I know, I know, like two words, but um, so that that kind of feeds into the other one of the other questions I want to ask, which is, so being someone who does changeling the dreaming as like my main game, mythology is obviously factors in very heavily. How would you say, I guess, knowing those myths or being familiar with those myths factors into the gameplay experience for? any of these really yeah so what we've done is uh, we didn't copy any kind of rpg template when we build our rpgs so our rpgs use runes instead of dice the elder futhark set that was my other question was talk about the distinctive mechanic you showed yesterday yeah <laughs> and uh the other mechanic that we did was an afterlife mechanic ah. because uh we, we didn't want to go to fantasy tropes of raised dead resurrection reincarnation because norse myths did not have that mm -hmm. but they had the valkyries they had valhalla they had uh, Folkvangar, Rand's Underwater Hall, so several other heavens, right, that the Valkyries could bring you to. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so we have an afterlife mechanic based on that in the game. So what we've taken is really the, the literature, the, the mythology, the history, and turned that into a game rather than start with a game and then see, like, okay, how do can you apply mythology or something else to it? Yeah. With the runes mechanic, is that based on like the divination system or something else? Related something to else. Runes? Uh, okay. So we do have the explanation of what the runes mean, okay. uh, how you use them phonetically. So if you wanted to create riddles for your players using the runes, but the runes in themselves, uh, what happens is every player customizes a bag of runes uh, based on a stat called essence, and that's a point by system in terms of how many points you're going to put in there. And each symbol that's on those runes in your essence bag represents a spell, a power, a maneuver, a talent. And then you've got another stat, which is also a point by, which is called Destiny. And it tells you how many runes you draw from your bag at random, whenever you want to do a skill check, start a new round of combat, or just interact with the world in a meaningful way. And you, so you draw those runes at random. And those three runes, or two runes, three runes, let's say, at a starting character, they represent your actions. And one of the really revolutionary things that the runes have allowed us to do is create the world's first RPG that has three levels of mechanical crunch or complexity that anyone at the table could play at any level at any time and the system ties it together in real time. So that means if you're sitting around your table and you've got a couple of players that are like math averse, they're like great imagination, they're like, I want to go on an adventure. Why are you telling me we need to read three pages of grapple rules just for me to grab someone, you know? Uh, can the rules get in the back seat, please? So we say, you know what? Play on the lower crunch levels and go as high in the crunch levels as you'd like. And then the person sitting right beside could be a min-maxer that says, I get endorphins by stacking powers and seeing numbers popping up. Great. Play at the higher crunch levels, and that way you're going to get that satisfaction of seeing things increase, combos, clever combos that you're going to put together as you rune chains, you create rune chains. Uh, so there's there's a lot to the, the nuance of how to use the runes. And some of us oscillate between those two points on the spectrum. So. Yeah. Um, awesome. Damage is the other thing that the, the runes actually made combat very, very interesting ah. because we deviated from the hit point system, right? So okay. uh, you know, I'll ask you, do you think the hit point system makes combat feel more visceral and dangerous or less? Uh, I'm, used, I'm used to health levels rather than hit points, but yep. it, probably less, yes. Yeah, because there's just a whole bunch of math. Yeah. And then 
other RPGs will have you look at like look up charts. Like if you've taken X amount of damage, start applying modifiers and things like this. Here it's really simple. The runes in your bag are your life total. When you take a wound, you take a rune out of your bag. Until it gets healed back in your bag, you can't have access to that uh, symbol. Meaning every single hit you take, your repertoire of abilities starts to shrink. And so combat now feels very uh, dangerous because you're like, oh, uh, I got my healing rune in there. I can't afford to get hit this round because there's 50-50 chance I'm gonna lose that healing rune. I'm gonna use my actions instead of like running and attacking. I'm gonna save both runes for parrying. When, you know, because I've got an enemy in front of me. So it becomes a lot more of a like tactical decisions uh, and how do you want to use your actions rather than did the dice let me do it? And it's good too because I always find, you know, doing the number crunching, it, it creates a form of tension that is solely on the player and it kind of takes you out of the character's story to an extent. Yeah. Related to that, I was going to say, you know, I, I come from the World of Darkness set of gamers where having graphic novels and novels and all these sort of ancillary materials is, I won't say expected, but a lot of the lines have that. So it's something that I always like to see in other games because it does help enrich the kinds of stories you can tell, I feel. You get different examples modeled across a variety of media that help you construct your own game. So I think that's really... Absolutely (laughs) agreed. Uh, Absolutely agreed with you there. Uh, That's what I loved about World of Darkness when I started playing World of Darkness back in the 80s. It was such a big difference to D&D. There was so much more story. There was so much more immersion and feel to the game. Um, And so that's one of the reasons I said we need need novels, we need authors to bring that you know next dimension to the, our game world to the characters that are in the game world and when we started athlete at the big city project with ed uh, i asked ed to write a novel first and foremost and i said let us look at the characters their stories why are they in the city why is anyone in this city and what are the the story arcs within the city before we even started designing the city right on cool well i will have to share some information on the podcast about if you have a website, I'll point people to the website and yep. encourage them to take a look. So. www.fateofthenorns.com. Okay. On Facebook, Fate of the Norns. On Instagram, Fate of the Norns. On Twitter, Fate of the Norns R. So got nice consistency there. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Have a great day. All right. So I'm here at PAX at booth. I'm not sure what number this booth is, but it's the 30, Monty Cook Games. 3901. All right. And I'm here with? Charles Ryan. And can you tell me about your role with Monty Cook Games? Yeah, so I am one of the partners of the company. We, myself, Monty, and Shauna, I'm the COO, and I run sort of the marketing side. We're a very small team, so many of us wear multiple hats. Uh, there's only a dozen of us in the entire company okay. uh, of the full-time staff. Um, and uh, so I kind of bring our products out to market and whatnot, and that involves coming to shows like PAX. And there are many beautiful ones here. <laughs> so, Thank you. So in particular, because I'm here for Changeling the podcast, and we mm-hmm. cover Changeling the Dreaming, playing a fairy in modern times, dealing with themes of being torn between two worlds, etc. Two of the games that you have which have caught my attention are Old Gods of Appalachia, which Mm -hmm. I've heard a lot about, but I haven't listened to the podcast or anything. Apologies. And then We Are All Mad Here, which as I understand is sort of dark fairy tale themed. So can you tell a little bit about those two games in particular? Yeah, so I'll start really quickly with Old Gods. Uh, Old Gods of Appalachia is, as you point out, based on a, a fiction podcast that is set in the Appalachian region. Um, it is a, a horror game in which you find yourself confronted with cosmic level horrors, but it is uh, a very intimate game. You're in a setting that's very intimate. It's set in the early 20th century or 
primarily, although it can be expanded in both directions. Um, uh, but it has a, a lean sort of into um, folklore um, and um, folk magic and, okay. and those elements as your primary defenses against these cosmic horrors. So it has a very intimate feeling. Uh, you might be facing things that are a threat to humanity or the universe even, but you're doing it in your small town, your, your home. You are immediately defending your, your family and, and your community. Okay. And so it does, um, while, the again, it's, it's a cosmic horror in the sense of the, the things you end up facing are much bigger than, than the folklore. Um, the folklore and um, uh, you know, those sort of uh, traditional magics and, and traditional um, elements are, are in your uh, arsenal of, of, of defenses. Um, it also, not everything is evil and cosmic. Um, there are also forces from what they call the green, which is sort ah. of the natural world. Um, not necessarily good guys, uh, but more predatory than evil, but okay. also very much opposed to these dark forces, so they can be uh, forces that you align yourself with as well as uh, maybe uh, have to protect yourself from. And do you draw on kind of different streams of folklore for those two aspects, or is it...? So I, I would argue probably that the, the, the primary sort of uh, creatures of the dark, the, the sort of the evil things, um, aren't really human folklore. That's more cosmic horror stuff. Although they may take that forms. They may take forms that come out of that. Um, whereas the creatures of the green are a little bit more uh, folklore oriented. Okay. Yeah. And so what about this one here? So this is We Are All Mad Here. And what it is, is it's a source book for the cipher system that focuses on the fairy tale genre. So it's a nice, big, thick, hefty source book, as you can see. And as with all of our genre books, these are the ones with the white co covers that you see like this, um, it really examines the breadth of the of the genre. So it will talk about all different aspects of the genre, and then it will dive pretty deeply, and it gives you character options and expansions on abilities and equipment and all the types of things that you might find associated with that genre. And so this, it, and then also like, uh, like our other ones, it gives you a sample uh, campaign setting that you can use. And so uh, in this one, uh, the campaign setting is, a, is a, very much a fairy tale realm, um, oh, wow. uh, it's got a poster map in here, as you can see. And, um, and you are called uh, from the real world into the setting, uh, into your sort of fairy tale alter ego to help solve the problems of that, of that world. Um, and you make uh, your you know, bargains with the, with the entities that are there, and then you carry them out and so on and so forth. And I've played, I played a fair amount of, of games in the setting, and I, and I absolutely, absolutely adore it. Yeah. Because as much as the old gods of Appalachia sounds interesting and impressive, this is the one that I think is maybe more aligned with what changeling players would be familiar right. with. Right. This so. is this is much more fairy tale focused, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So you're going to pull from almost every thing. In fact, it's actually got in here a really cool index um, that is. It has oh, wow. like every. Uh, let's see if I can find it here. The story index. So all the stories that you that you. Uh, so oh, wow. no, from from <laughs> yeah, fairy tale yeah. world, it has the elements in the book that would apply to that. So if you wanted to do something from uh, you know from Alice in Wonderland, here's all the resources <laughs> there. If you want to do something from Snow White, if you want to do something from Jack and the Beanstalk, Hansel and Gretel, you know, I mean, you can see all the like what, probably two or three dozen um, different uh, sources of, uh, of um, stories, yeah. uh, uh, worlds of uh, fairy tales, traditional 
fairy tales, it has all the resources that are scattered throughout the book where you find those to, to sort of recreate that. And it's a beautiful book, too. I mean, just aesthetically, I really just like looking at it. So. Yeah, yeah. This, and this, is, this one, if I remember correctly, is this the one? Yeah, you get a little bit of a... I don't know if you note how the, the pages change. Like, yeah, it's that. a gradient, yeah. Very briefly, just because I don't know if everyone who will be listening is familiar with the cipher system. What's uh -huh. the distinction of that system mechanically, I guess? So the cipher system is very much focused on a narrative style of gameplay. It's gonna, it, uh, it pushes the mechanics out to the players, so the GM is focused on their creativity, and then it gives the GM and the players tools that they can do to make what they want to have happen make within the game. So the, the GM... Uh, has tools to steer the game in a certain way, that, but it also doesn't railroad the players. It gives the players their own options um, uh, 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 to have a voice in that, um, but also they're also their own options to, to find the ways to steer the, the narrative the way they want. So it's very much a story about, or a game about telling the stories that you want to play. It's um, a mid-crunch game, so it's got, <laughs> it's got enough mechanics in there that you're going to be playing a game that's got structure, you're not just making up as you go along, but a really nice balance with um, with being able to uh, shape the narrative the way you like, both through your characters and as a GM, um, okay. and a uniquely easy on the GM game to play. Like I said, mechanics are pushed out to the players. GMs never roll the dice. That's, that's a relief. You spend all your time just making it cool, yeah. and uh, all the, the mechanical solutions are solved very, very quickly for the GM. Okay, excellent. Well, thank you very much for talking about them. Yeah, I'll yeah. post information uh, about the company and these games in particular on the, on the episode notes, and... Uh, Anything else that you want to add? or? Nope. Just uh, you can find all this stuff at, if you're not here at PAX, you can find all this stuff at moneykickgames.com. Okay. And uh, we make all kinds of cool stuff. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming by. So I'm here at PAX with Charles Ferguson Avery, who is the creator of various products, but foremost of which is. Is it Into the Wild and Into the Weird and the Wild? Into the Weird and Wild. So I'm here as a representative from Changeling the Podcast. We do Changeling the Dreaming. There's also Changeling the Lost, where the weird is an entire mechanic and such. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about the game and how you came to develop it? Well, it, um, it actually does very much spawn from my own childhood. Like it was, I spent a lot of time growing up in the woods. I spent a lot of time camping. I still do a lot of like backpacking and through hiking even to this day. And one thing I noticed is like whenever I played games is they never seem to do the wilderness justice. It was, at least in the games I was playing, it was always a stopover location. It was a place you were trying to get through to get to the dungeon, to get to the city, to get to the fort, whatever. But it never had much character beyond being a spooky woods with some monsters in it. and. I looked around trying to find anything that had something that like I was looking for, couldn't find it, so I made it. That's, I think, the sensible thing to do, so. <laughs> Pretty much. I... So in, in terms of what the, the book, I mean, I've flipped through the book, but would you tell our listeners what it contains, what they might find inside? Well, it's, it is unfortunately a bit of a hodgepodge of like a lot of stuff. So I can't say it is like, you know, specifically about like the Fae and like, you know, the weird and stuff. Um, because at the same time, it's got like just very gritty like survival horror rules in it built into it. But it does come from like a bunch of stuff like you know. I wish I could pick all the sources, but like it's got everything from like the Fae. It's got trickster demons in it. It's got actual demons in it. It's got um, like body horror monsters, sort of like 
in reference to Annihilation when I started. I was I was reading those books along yeah, yeah, yeah. the time I was writing it, and then also just like a lot of kind of, um, for lack of a better term, like um, pagan roots. Like you know, you have these like you know weird gods that like worship blood, worship bone. They hate civilization, and you know they live in the darkest parts of the woods. Not evil, but they do not care for civilization. Yeah. Is it a standalone setting, or is it something that you would kind of bring into other existing games? Uh, very much something you bring in. The, okay. um, the word we use is system neutral or system agnostic. Uh, the point of it and the way it's written is so that it can be used with just about any game. So whether it uses D100, D20, D6, so on and so forth, or even like some of the more like um, esoteric games that just use like taglines and words and stuff like that, I wanted to make sure that it would work with just about anything like once again i don't care what rules yeah. you use i want to make sure you have something that you can use and that's something i mean you're saying oh well it's not all about the faith but one of the beauties of changeling is because it does accommodate almost any dream or nightmare you could think of incorporating so having that setting and that mood is something which i think changeling often gets a lot of guff for being oh it's not dark enough it's not serious enough I don't, th I don't fully agree with those statements, but for anyone who does think that, it's like, well, here's a resource you could use maybe to darken your game if you chose. No, absolutely. I, actually, if I'm being honest, like, um, so, like, Changeling, Vampire the Masquerade, Werewolf, like, these are, uh, I think, Scion 2, if I'm remembering correctly. They're all games that, like, I, honestly, I really wish I hadn't missed out on when I was a kid, because, like, I'm coming back to them later, and, like, for the record, I absolutely believe anything with Changeling. Like, it's, it can be horrifying. Like, it's oh, the yeah. most horrifying. Like, um, but, uh, yeah, like, I honestly, like, nowadays I am kind of going back and, like, checking out those games instead of, like, you know, like, I read D&D when I was a kid, but now I'm going back to these, like, other games and I realize how much, like, art and thought was put into them, especially with Changeling, which, like, you know, very much goes into... I haven't read the book all the way through, but I have friends who, like, play it and I have run one or two, well, been part of one or two games, and I, I love the vibe of it. Yeah. Um, so. Are there any other games or products that you've been involved with? Because I saw there's a whole bunch more at your table that listeners might be also interested in. Well, um, we did carry on, like, our tradition in Into the Weird and Wild. We made a book about cities um, called Into the Sesson Citadel. Uh, we won an any. I am proud of that. But um, that is very much so also about, instead of the city just being a place that, you know, it's got names, it's got shops, it might have some, you know, factions you can work with. Instead, we wanted to make it into, like, an actual gameable sphere, where it's like, they're, okay, there are factions that are constantly working against each other. You can work with them and against, you know, and pit yourself against those. But at the same time, you also have to watch out for the dangers that are happening on the city street. It is this horrible living breathing thing that you have to like try to navigate around avoid danger and somehow not get caught onto the street um i actually i've had a lot of people talk about using it for nobody has said for changeling but i've had a lot of people say they use it for vampire the masquerade which like once again going back to those books it makes me happy to hear that i'd use it for changeling yeah. <laughs> so uh your booth is 3755 at PAX, is that yep, correct? Yep, 3755, follow the uh, aisle 3800, that's the closest to. And for anyone who's listening to this not at PAX, where could they find your your company and information and whatnot online if you wanted to point them? So our main website is feralindiestudio.com. That's our shopping um, shopping front, along with, like I believe, some links to various other places like 
We're pretty big on itch. We try to release digital copies of everything that we own. We are also currently um, uh, putting together a Kickstarter for a mega dungeon right now called uh -huh. Ave Nox. Um, the tagline being uh, a history of disaster and folly buried deep under the earth. Or something akin to that. I, I've been working on it nonstop. I'm starting to lose yeah. <laughs> sleep over this thing. It is, it, there's a lot. There's a lot going on, especially this weekend. It's like on top of everything else. Yeah. But we will include links in the show notes to the episode so people can find it. Thank you very much for your time and enjoy PAX. Yeah, no, pleasure. Thank you. All right, so I'm here at PAX behind booth number. Is it 3358? 3358 with? Stephen Dewey. And tell us a little bit about who you are, Stephen Dewey. So I'm an independent game designer. I wrote a, a fairly popular tragic horror game called Ten Candles. Um, and a one that's all about strange icy fey creatures called to serve a winter hunger. Which is the one that we're particularly interested in today. So if you had to give a quick pitch about to serve a wintry hunger, I'm going to have to practice saying that. Uh, how would you describe it? <laughs> sure. So to serve a wintry hunger is a dark fairy tale role playing game. It is for one GM or facilitator and exactly four players. Uh, those four players are cast into one of four specific roles, all of whom are a, a quartet of mischievous, arrogant, braggart little snow pixies uh, that have all been sent out into a blizzard by their wintry mistress to hunt down a human that has gotten lost within said blizzard, uh, to hunt them down and drag them home for summer. Uh, so the players are encouraged to uh, really... Um, engage with each other in the way that backstabbing and horrible little monstrous sprites might. Um, the gameplay itself is the hunt. Uh, so over the course of maybe a couple of hours, uh, usually no longer than two hours at the most, uh, the players will engage in the hunt. Uh, they will be racing out ahead, trying to get ahead of their fellow spirits so that they can show off more and uh, just generally have a much more successful hunt than those being left behind. They're also jockeying and competing for their mistress's favor, uh, which is a physical, a mechanical component that's sort of passed around the table depending on who is her favorite or least favorite in any given moment. Um, even though the nature of how these spirits interact is very competitive, they will all either win together by successfully capturing the human or fail together and face their wintry mistress's horrible punishment as a result. So it's almost semi-cooperative, semi-competitive. Yeah, you'll, you'll right. all either be rewarded or failed together, uh, but you are encouraged in the role play to uh, sometimes just sabotage each other horribly. And I have seen, sort of as a result of this, the pride that some of those spirits have get directly in the way of victory, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's not like losing a cooperative board game together it's more, it's, it is a role-playing game, so it yeah, leads yeah. to really interesting stories. Some pixies just want to watch the world freeze. Exactly. Like. <laughs> so now, did you draw on particular mythology or folklore when you were crafting this, or is it just kind of a setting that you came up with on its own, so generous? Yeah, so uh, this was uh, vaguely inspired in the early days by a, a yokai in Japanese folklore called Yuki Ona, who is sort oh, of a wintry okay. spirit. Um, 
that was like the tiniest little nugget of inspiration and then it very much has grown into its own thing. Um, but it, it was originally designed as part of an anthology of winter games that were going to be released uh, that never wound up being released and now I've just released the game on its own. Okay. Is it connected to anything? Like is it part of any other setting that you've developed or is it a complete standalone kind of thing? It's an entirely standalone game, however the mechanics of the actual rule system do pull inspiration from my other game, Ten Candles. Um, so the main mechanic being that as the hunt is progressing, each of the players have a personal pool of six-sided dice. They have six of them. And in order to construct your snowflake, in order to uh, execute the hunt perfectly, you need to assemble a collection of dice one through six. So on every sort of round, all of the players get to roll their little pools of dice, and at first you're all looking for a roll of one. If you get your one, then you get to narrate sort of your part of the first leg of the hunt. But the one is then removed from your die pool. So as you get further and further along the hunt, your die pool gets smaller and smaller, which means that actually finishing the hunt, getting that six you need in the last leg of the hunt with the one die left, um, it increases the chances that the human might escape and you'll all be punished for your failure. So it sounds almost like it's the kind of thing you would do as a one-shot or like a mini-game as part of a larger thing, or is it is an yes. ongoing? No, okay. it's, it's very... it's. It would be uh, ideal for one-shot sessions. Um, I like to say there is replayability mostly for the storyteller yeah, or facilitator. Yeah. You know, bring this around to different groups. It does require an exact cast of four players, so it's really one of those games that's like, it's very small, it's you know no more than like 30, 40 pages long, um, it's pretty dang cheap, and just have it on your shelf for when the stars align and you've got four good friends and you're like, hey, I have a game that'll take two hours probably less uh we can roll some dice and you actually get to like elementary school crafts class cut out paper snowflakes as you play the game to uh yeah. mark your progress along the hunt uh and they the snowflakes come in important in a couple ways one being that how the snowflake is cut is up to how successful you are so if you perform well if you roll the number that you need and you get to claim it then you get to make a big and beautiful cut out of your own snowflake. If, however, you have to rely on the fellow spirits to take pity on you, to give that you one of their dice to move forward, then they get to make a tiny, insignificant cut out of your snowflake. At the end of the game, in addition to role-playing out either the great rewards that your wintry mistress will bestow upon you, or the horrible punishments, it also uh, details what interaction you then take with your snowflake. If you are successful in your hunt, you all get to unfold your snowflake one by one and show it off to all of your fellow players and to see it really unveiled for the first time. But if you fail your wintry mistress, everyone is forced one by one to tear up their oh. snowflakes, <laughs> never having a chance to see what they have made. Oh, it's that. possibly the most brutal mechanic I have ever made. And I'm deeply proud of it. I mean, especially as someone who was terrible at cutting out snowflakes as a child <laughs> and, and, and did feel a great deal of pride when one was successful. Mm. Yes. But it's also, I like the idea, like you said, of having it on your shelf because in the context of a longer-running Chronicle game like Changeling or something, mm. if there's a, if you have more than four players but somebody can't show up one day, you know, it's a good, like, placeholder. And it's the kind of thing which sounds like it would integrate very easily into another kind of 
dark fairy setting as well, if needed. So I think so. You could kind of easily alter the setting, yeah. I think, at a base yeah. level. Um, it is a pretty heavily guided game. Like, you're telling a very specific kind of story. Yeah. So it'd be a little tricky to do anything that isn't wintry themed uh, <laughs> and to slide that in. But I would really like using something like this as, you know, if you're encountering someone in your world who's like, let me tell you a story about a powerful fae yeah, that yeah, you're yeah, going yeah. to meet. And then, hard cut, we're going to play a different game for a couple hours and that's the story we're told. And then you can move right back into business as usual and maybe go get to meet this wintry fae that uh, you just heard about in the stories. Good for if you're a storyteller and can't think of what you're doing for today's session. Exactly. <laughs> well, cool. So if people wanted to find you online or find your work, uh, is there anywhere you'd like to point to or any other games you want to mention? Yeah, so you can find all of my games on CavalryGames.com. Um, you can find me either at CavalryGames on Twitter or my personal account at ShiftyGinger. Um, you can find me mentioning, you know, my various other creative endeavors there or find links in my bio to find all my stuff. But CavalryGames.com is where you can find all my games. Okay, and there will be links to that in the notes to this episode. So thank you very much for taking the time. And hopefully anyone listening who's at PAX, they'll, they'll be pointed to your booth. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we'll be here all weekend. Awesome. Thank you.